Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of our podcast on all things impact investing. My name is Catherine Fox. I am the founder and advisor at Sunny Branch Wealth, which is a fee-only investment advisory firm focused on serving millennial and Gen Z inheritors who want to create positive impact with their wealth. I am joined here by Josh Heil. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Well, thanks for having me, Catherine, and um, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, my name is Josh Heil. I'm the CEO uh, and co-founder of Citizen Mint, and Citizen Mint provides uh, wealth advisors with access to private market opportunities that both have uh, uh, compelling financial returns as well as compelling impact, either positive social or environmental impact uh, across asset classes. Um, so excited to talk about this topic because it's something that's near and dear to my heart and something that I think that uh, investors are looking for uh, is just a, being able to align uh, their capital with their values over time. As a little bit of background for our listeners, I asked Josh to join me hosting this podcast because as an advisor, I have struggled with the kinds of questions that we're going to be discussing um, and that Citizen Mint is really finding solutions for for it advisors, but more importantly for me, for my clients and for the everyday person who is interested in impact investing and wants to feel like their money is really creating positive impact, but just feels stuck because they're invested in public markets and they just see story after story after story of, you know, big companies doing bad things and feeling like how, even if I'm in these ESG funds, how is my money actually creating positive impact when I'm just surrounded by bad actors? I know that's what I hear a lot from my clients, from the investor side of things. But Josh, from from your side, over on the other side of the table, why do you think that the public markets or the stock market falls short on impact? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I think maybe I can just start us out with kind of this broad understanding of what all these terms mean, because sometimes it can be confusing. So really, um, it started with uh, socially responsible investing or SRI, where essentially people said, hey, I don't want to invest in certain things that are against my values, whether it's in alcohol or gambling or weapons manufacturing. Uh, those, that was kind of the first. So it was like divest from those specific investments. And then came ESG, which is environmental social governance. And it's like essentially saying, what are the negative ex, uh, operating or negative operating externalities of this specific business and how it's impacting um, like their shareholders or society. And then trying to assess, uh, can this, is there some businesses who can do better than other businesses? But ultimately, the goal of that business is profit making. It's not actually impact. Whereas, you know, impact investing to us and why the, kind of the differential between the stock market and what we're trying to do is really solving these big global challenges that we're facing in so many different areas, whether it's around housing affordability, whether it's around climate change, education, healthcare, and saying, hey, these are massive opportunities. Uh, that we need to solve over the next few decades. And, but you can also say there are also investment opportunities because when there's something that big, uh, there's always investment opportunities to help solve it. Um, so, trying to say we can be the solution, but we can also find financial security in that. But it's just very different from, you know, just 
doing screens on companies uh, or comparing them to one another to say this one's just a tad bit better than this one. And so it should be in this category called ESG or in this fund. Um, that is it, just a bigger differential there than compared to say like, we're going to invest in affordable housing, uh, real estate opportunity, and we're going to impact affordability in the Seattle region and the Portland region and all these other places that have massive uh, inequality. Could you give us an example of what that might actually look like? And I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here yeah. because I, yeah. I give you no preview of this. But so if you have a company that is a, a publicly traded company that is in some way investing in a clean energy future, like our shared clean energy future. Could you give a brief example of kind of how that company might be investing in a clean energy future and then contrast that to if I was looking at an impact company in private markets, what is that company doing for our clean energy future? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is a few companies that you could consider. <coughs> that you could consider broadly impact in the public markets. It's just fewer and far between. Um, so like uh, one company that usually is talked about within that space is Orsted, a large European company produces a lot of uh, wind energy um, off the coast of like major European um, countries. And But Orsted really was a coal company at previously. And then they said, hey, this industry is dying. We need to reinvest ourselves, reinvent ourselves, have a positive impact instead of a negative impact. And they they essentially closed down a lot of their coal mines, sold off a lot of assets, and then said, okay, we're investing fully in renewable energy because we know that's the future of where we're going. So that is like more of an impact-like investment. Um, some other places within public markets where it's hard to find that impact investment is like real estate. Like there's just not a a publicly traded affordable real estate fund. Maybe those big REITs have something related to affordable, but it's a, just a small percentage of their portfolio. And then compare this to on like the private market side where you can invest directly in solar and wind opportunities in private markets to have that direct impact to say, you know, let's take um, like less, let's use less oil and let's electrify our grid and let's use more uh, EV cars that are powered off renewable energy. And I mean, most of the big companies are investing alongside you in some way in this regard. Like think of Amazon, Microsoft, Google. They're probably the largest purchasers of energy from these private market opportunities that are invested in solar and wind, but they're like ultimately buying the energy off them to power their data centers. Um, other kind of investment opportunities that we see in the private markets is really like, hey, let's build more affordable housing and let's house these individuals that don't have housing. Um, so we've done a few deals in that specific area where, you know, we know that housing affordability is an issue uh, where we live and, um, you know, but it's an affordability issue across the whole U.S. Interest rates, you know, when they go up to 7%, most people can't buy that starter home that they thought they might be able to buy, like, say, a couple of years ago. Plus, at the same time, housing prices have gone up significantly. And so there's going to be more people renting and there's going to be and that causes actually a supply crunch and it actually causes rents to go up. And so it's like we need to be able to house like our teachers, our nurses, our retail workers near where they live so they're not driving 40, 50 miles at a time to get to a job. 
Um, and that's what we're trying to really support. Um, but at the same time, be like, hey, we want to find good deals and good opportunities for investors. Moving a little bit backwards and looking more at private markets for those listeners who are just maybe not thinking about alternatives at all, but are still kind of focused on impact in the public markets. Let's talk about just ESG investing. Can you talk about the, some of the issues in that space? Something that I run into a lot as an advisor, something I really struggle with is just the lack of data that exists to actually appropriately screen companies. And in particular, I'm thinking of a recent New York Times article talking about um, the use of child labor in American factories and how basically the auditing firms that are supposed to be catching it have no incentive to catch factories using child labor because that would make the companies paying them who are the companies using factories that make use of child labor angry. Um, And as an advisor who is promoting ESG funds to have to say to my clients, well, you might not want to invest in companies that use child labor, but we don't have the data. So I can tell you with the data that we have that you're not, but like what the real picture is, I can't tell you. So could you expand on that in a more technical and less anecdotal sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, I've spent a lot of time looking at this over and like, you know, there's a lot of different research out there. Like, okay, so there's like Sustainalytics, which is one of the main like research providers for ESG data. Uh, and then like there's other providers um, that do something similar. But what they found is there's no correlation in ratings over these providers. I mean, they're almost uncorrelated. Whereas like, you know, the same company will be scored completely differently on the same metrics. And you're kind of like, how are they getting to these like specific scores? So there's no like great industry like um, standards at at the same time. It's a lot of self-reporting by the companies and they kind of can report what they want again, because there's no industry standard. Uh, Like essentially there's people working on that and thinking about it, but there hasn't been like, uh, definitive, this is how we're going to do it. Um, so companies have a lot of leeway. And what we have seen is the companies that have um, the best resources or reporting get marked up higher, even though they're what they're doing might not um, be necessarily good. And so like, just as an example, you know, Exxon's considered one of the highest ESG companies out there. And it's obviously like what it's producing, it has like some very large negative impacts whereas like it would rate higher than like a solar or wind company um and you're like why would that make sense um well it's because they put a lot of money into their reporting of it and so they can sway things in certain ways and make things look maybe better than they might otherwise um so there's there's a lot of issues around that where it's like you see there's the biggest companies having the best scores um whether what they're underlying producing is good for the society as a whole um and i think you're going to find that over time unfortunately like it's going to take you know years to get to some um level of consistency within the industry i think the best way to think about it though is like because you know it's obviously been in the news a lot um but it's like these are actual risk for the companies and that's how like I see the best investors thinking about this. It's like, you know, you have um, brand risk 
that's a real risk. You have environmental risk. That is a real risk to your business. You have like employee risk because it's like employees want to know that their companies are doing good things and they want to work for companies that are doing good things. Um, so like if you want to hire the best employees, you also need to like think about all these things. Those are all risk. They might not be like perfect balance sheet risk that you can understand at the current point in time. But it's like if Nike does something bad <coughs> or Adidas is associated with uh, certain like stars who say not great stuff, then you're going to have a big risk to your brand and it's going to impact your revenues and ultimately your profitability. So you have to think about like all those kind of when assessing ESG risk. So I like this discussion of risk and I want to, I want to turn to its partner return, right? Can you talk about how from a, a sort of return risk and return horizon perspective, how that looks different maybe for publicly traded companies who are obviously quarterly, they're, they're responsible to their shareholders, right? Those short-term profits um, versus when maybe look in the impact space in private markets, like what types of different risks are you addressing and dealing with? Um, and how does that change your return horizon? Yeah. Yeah. I think a little bit of it is um, there's, there's this thing between public and private markets called the illiquidity premium. And that's one of the biggest things you, you deal with. You know, you, when you invest in private markets, you have illiquidity. So that means you can't just take your money out like you can the stock market. You're like, I just want to sell this company. I'm done with it. Um, whereas like in private markets, you say, well, here's when we're going to sell or here's when you expect your money back. And it's in two, five, 10 years at a time. And But you get paid to take that that's the premium you get paid because you're taking that illiquidity risk. Now companies in the private market have less pressure to perform on a quarterly basis. So they can invest in their employees. Like if it's that they can invest in uh, making a property better and understand that that's going to lead to longer term returns, even if it's more expensive in the near term um, compared to public market companies, you hope they're investing for the future and most great companies do but not all do. And they might be saying, hey, we're going to cut employee count because we need to hit this profitability number, even though it's going to have an impact on morale and that might cause us to lose good employees. I mean, those kind of things that need to always come into the understanding um, of what you're investing in. And so, and like, I think from a returns perspective, just, just to make sure it's very clear, the returns should be a little bit higher in private markets. Uh, in some cases, you will be taking more risk than public markets, but not in all cases. And I think people misassociate um, risk uh, or illiquidity with higher risk because there is parts of public or private markets where it's like it can be illiquid, but it it's going to be definitely less volatile and less risky than <laughs> sometimes like your hot tech stock in public markets that a lot of people might be jumping into. So it's just like, I, I just want to make that like distinction. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more um, kind of talking about that, that pressure, like those, you know, the decisions that have to be made when you are reporting on a quarterly basis. One of the issues that I run into 
um, and that frustrates clients and myself is you're sort of playing this whack-a-mole game when you're in the public markets with impact where it's like, okay, well, you know, I, I really like this company because I really care about you know, climate. Um, and I think that they are you know, doing more good than bad from a, a long-term climate perspective, but you know, it's not a diverse company, right? It's all, it's all run by white men or they have some like hiring practices that I don't support. So it feels like you're always sacrificing. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about when you are investing in companies that are impact focused companies, um, you know, how those trade-offs can be, can be reduced? Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's a little bit more difficult in public markets, um, in the sense of like, you need like shareholder resolutions to essentially like push the management team to do this stuff in a lot of cases. Um, not all teams, but in if you're like really going for impact, and you're like, hey, I want more diverse board, I want a more diverse management team that takes time. And you have to have a commitment from management to do that. Um, uh, and so that's like a big thing that you'll focus on in public markets and it might not be as fast as you want and it might take time uh i think some of the things we look at when we're thinking about private markets is you know going into it being like okay do they have a diverse investment team are they thinking about this in most cases like the teams we're working with are thinking about this um already uh you know they're they're reporting on their impact they have really thoughtful measurement we kind of agree on what we they're going to measure for us going into it so that we can essentially report that to our investors. And so like you shouldn't see much inconsistency um, over time. It's like, Hey, maybe they won't hit their impact metrics. Uh, And that might happen. And that's okay. As long as we understand why that happened and how we can make it better in the future. Uh, But like, and maybe they'll outperform their impact metrics, but at least we have some agreement. We have some understanding with them. And like we're on the same page because we're a capital allocator to them uh, and we have a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, influence compared to a public market company where, you know, you have to get more buy in from the whole invest shareholder group to like really push the company to do something um, and change uh, their ways. Same subject of measuring. I think a lot of people are more familiar with how you measure impact or the standard measures of impact when you look at public markets, because there's going to be a pretty limited set of criteria that you can use to measure impact. Can you talk about how that looks when you're looking at private markets and measuring impact? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's really going to be um, one of those things where it depends on the specific opportunity and what we're trying to measure. We have about 60 to 70 uh, measurement ability, like 60 to 70 measures of what we can like measure over time. And we actually are expanding those as much as we can. Um, but it just, it really depends. Like, so for affordable housing, we'll look at how many units they're building, how many jobs that's creating, uh, how many people they'll actually house at what area of median income will they house them. And then that's just at the front end. And then on the back end, when that, say if it's a development project, we'll measure you know, electricity, water usage. Um, one of our managers actually uses tenant surveys. So they essentially um, do send out surveys to their whole tenant group and say, okay, how far were you driving before? How far are you driving now to your job? How has that impacted your happiness? How much time have you gotten back? What are you enjoying in the area? Those kind of things that like 
are hard to measure, honestly, like until unless you like go out there and do the hard work uh, for like climate, it's a lot easier because I mean, uh, in the sense of like solar wind, uh, you're measuring carbon abatement, which is but we put it in things people can understand because nobody understands a ton of carbon abatement and what that actually means. You need to tell them how many cars did it take off the road? Uh, how many flights from Seattle to New York did that take out of the air because of like you investing in this project? Um, but those are more standardized measures that is, is pretty well accepted across the industry of what, how to measure that. So, um, well, Josh, thank you for joining me here today for our first episode of our yet as unnamed podcast that will have a name by the time uh, <laughs> by the time anyone listens to it. Um, so as again, we'll just wrap up with a little bit more information about ourselves, where you can find us. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Sunny Branch, you can find me on the website, uh, sunnybranchwealth.com or follow me on Instagram at sunnybranchwealth. Josh, where can they find you? Yeah, so citizenmint.com um, or you can email me at josh at citizenmint.com and um, I usually am very active in responding. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, everyone. I think our next topic is going to be on debunking impact investing myths. So we hope you'll uh, be interested in joining us then.